a group of blind men heard that a strange animal was being delivered to their home village. And the people that were delivering it said, it's called an elephant. Obviously, having never seen one before, this group of blind men set out to find out what it looked like. And so they tracked down where this beast was being held, and they all at once reached out and grabbed a different part of this animal, calling out what they were feeling to describe it for one another. One grabbed its tusk and said, hey, this new animal, it's like a spear. Another one who was leaning against its side said, no, it's like a, it's like a wall. Another man grabbing its ear said, no, you're both wrong, it's like a fan. Another one holding onto the trunk said, no, it's like a thick snake. And still another one at the back holding its tail said, no, you're all wrong, it's like a rope. This ancient proverb has been used through the years to describe many issues, but most recently it's been used to describe humanity's pursuit of a knowledge of God. Some people describe his holiness well. Other people describe his justice. Other people his love. But no one really has the full picture. And no one should be so arrogant as to say that anyone else is wrong. No one has a greater claim to truth than anyone else. No matter the religious bent, and even within Christianity, we have differences on what God is like. Some people say, how can you know? You haven't seen the whole animal. And so we have this parable to deal with. And as Christians, we have to step back and say, boy, is the pursuit of knowledge of God really that futile? Is it really that frustrating? Is it really that useless to try to describe who God is? Are we really just clamoring about in the dark, describing what it is we're fortunate enough to stumble upon and feel? Now, as Christians, and here at Oak Ridge, Specifically, we would say that that parable, it has a very important detail missing. A detail that changes everything. That detail is this. The elephant can talk. And the elephant can say to these blind men, Hey, I'm more than just a spear. I'm more than just a wall. I'm more than just a tree trunk. I'll tell you what I'm like if you'll listen. And we at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, we believe that God has spoken. And we are not clamoring about in the dark, trying to understand what God is like, blind and dependent on one another. He has said clearly, here is what I'm like. We don't have to be bound to our subjective emotions. We are not in prisons of our own relativity. No, we aren't. God has made it very clear what he's like, how he works, and what that means for us. And this series that we started last week is really a a trek into God's self-disclosure. If you've just joined us now, we are in the middle or just beginning a series where we are looking at the attributes of God. We are taking a glimpse at, at facets of his character as he has described himself to be because we want to know what this elephant, capital E, is like. We want to know what he's like, and so we look at him and we listen to what he says. Now, as we begin this series, and as Jim started last week talking about the ever-presence of God, what a great way to start the series. God knew that. What a great way to start. God is with us now. He is with you before you got here today. He was with you all week, and he will be with you when you leave here. It's a great truth to dwell on. But as we continue on this 
discovery, this study into what God is like, there are two principles that we need to keep in mind that will guide our study. Both important and they complement one another. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that we will never know God fully. We won't know Him fully. We are limited beings trying to comprehend a limitless creature. We are finite trying to comprehend the infinite. We will never know Him fully. In fact, in Psalm 145, David says rightly, and we prayed this earlier, that God's greatness is unsearchable. We will never plumb the depths of just how great God is. He is beyond us. We will never exhaust our study of God's character. He is infinitely interesting and infinitely explorable. We will never get to close the book, so to speak, and say, ha, I got it. Now I understand God. Now I've solved that mystery. We'll never be able to say that. In fact, I once heard it said that that the God that you can reach with the ladder of reason is the God that you can change like a light bulb. If you can understand him, then he's not God, and he's certainly not a God worth worshiping, is he? No, this God is beyond us. He is unsearchable, as David says. So as we set out on a study of God, and as you continue it through the rest of your life, we need to understand that we will never fully comprehend him. We will never know him fully, and for that, he should be worshipped. Now, a complementary principle is that while we, were ne- we will never know him fully, we can know him truly. We can know him truly because he has spoken and he has revealed himself to us. And like we always do, as we study what God is like, we are going to be committed to what he has said about himself. We are going to tether ourselves to his self-disclosure. And here's the tricky part for us. We are going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us submit our preconceived notions and our ideas of God that we have collected through years of influences on us, whether from our family heritage or pop culture or whatever. We have all accumulated a version of God in our heads. Some are right, some are less right. And our goal for this series and for the rest of our lives is to take all of those and lay them at the foot of this and say, God, search my preconceived notions. I want to submit them all to what you say about yourself. And so these are two guiding principles that we want to keep in mind as we study who God is. We will never know him fully, but we can indeed know him truly, because God is the only expert on God. And so to learn about God, we go to God, and we ask him, what are you like? And we know from the scriptures that he has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us. And so if you want to think about it, this this series that we're in is kind of like a sampler, It's a sampler where we are getting to sample different tastes, different uh, bits of the the divine attributes, different uh, facets of his character. And we're going to allow our taste buds in our heart to jump for joy, but we're also going to see that their appetite is whetted for more. This will not be exhaustive, but it will be true because we're going to be tethered to the word of God. Now, as that is the introduction and it's out of the way, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to begin this morning by taking a step backwards, in a way. More of a panoramic view than we started with last week. We were looking at his ever-presence, that God is everywhere all the time, fully. But this morning, we're going to take a step back and, and examine him as a whole. We're going to look at the glory of God this morning. The glory of God. And we're going to ask, along with Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, when he says... Now show me your glory, God. That's what he says in verse 18 to God. And we're going to ask that as well. 
God, God, show me your glory, the full weight of who you are, everything that you are, show it all to me. I want to see it. Now, we should stop and define terms, right? What is the glory of God? We sing about it. We talk about it. To God be the glory. He is glorious uh, for his glory. But what are we talking about exactly when we say his glory? What does it mean when he's glorious? One theologian put it this way, and this is weighty. This is meaty, as it should be. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold perfections. The beauty of his manifold perfections. It can refer to the bright and awesome radiance that breaks forth in visible manifestations, or it can refer to the infinite moral excellence of his character. The infinite moral excellence of his character. In either case, it signifies a reality that is infinitely great and of infinite worth. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of everything that he is and everything that he's worth. It is the full weight of his character, the full weight of his attributes, the full weight of his essence on display. And this is exactly what Moses asks for here in verse 18. I want to see that. God, I want to see everything that you are. Show me your glory. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with the book of Exodus and the life of Moses, or maybe you need a refresher, Moses at this point had kind of seen God's glory, hadn't he? He wasn't unfamiliar with God at this point in his life. In fact, as you review the life of Moses, for us even today, I kind of read it and say, man, I wish I saw what Moses saw. You'll remember that he saw God in the burning bush where God revealed himself in this this plant that was on fire but not consumed, and God spoke to him out of this bush. And then there were the ten plagues that God used to lead Israel out of Egypt. And then there was the Red Sea parting, and then the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and manna from heaven. I mean, Moses had seen God. He knew who God was. He had seen his power, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his mercy. Moses was familiar with this God. In fact, only verses before the one we just read, in verse 11, it says this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. See, Moses knew God in a way that causes me to envy. I hope it's a righteous envy. I I want to see God on display like that. And yet we come to verse 18. We see that Moses still knew that there was more to see. He had seen all of this, and yet he said, you're holding back on me, God. There is more to you. I sense that this is the the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. God, pull back the veil. I want to see all that you are. I want to see everything that you can show me. Show me your glory. And at this point, I would suggest that we can all relate to that longing. Have you ever longed to see more of God? I just want to see more of you, God. Show me something else. Show show me something new. Pull back the veil just a little bit. The amazing thing about that longing of our hearts is that that it can be prompted by by all extremes and all circumstances, right? So we can be in in great joy. The Lord has answered a prayer and, and, and he's coming through and we feel so close to him and we find ourselves saying, Lord, I want to see more of you. It's like it's intoxicating. I just want more and more and more and more. 
then there are times we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And things are dark and hopeless and hard. We find ourselves saying along with the psalmist, God, why have you turned your back on me? We know theologically he has not, but it feels like that sometimes as well, doesn't it? And we find ourselves saying, God, show me your glory. Oh, I just need to see your glory. I need to see you. Show me something. And so no matter, no matter where we are in life, whether we're in the mountaintops or the valleys or anywhere in between, we can all relate to what Moses is calling for here. God, show me something. Show me your glory, please. I would suggest that this is a great longing for us to cultivate in our church and encourage in one another. No matter what circumstance we're calling from, it's always a good thing to long to know our God more. It's always a great thing to desire to, to see Him more fully, to behold His glory with more and more clarity. And we should encourage that, and hopefully, as we grow as a church and as, as God continues to shape us, when we come together on a Sunday morning, and we sing truths about his glory and his truth and his attributes and what he's done and what he's promised us and what, what's going to happen. And as we sing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs and celebrate God, we see his glory more and more and more and it becomes increasingly captivating and we want to see more and more. And it snowballs. And that is the goal of corporate worship, that week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we are exposed to more and more and more of God's glory, his attributes of who he is, and we become enamored with him. So that in the mountaintops and in the valleys, all alike, we say, God, keep showing me more. You're my lifeline. i got to see more. I need more. I remember when we were first married, my wife Patricia, she would sometimes find uh, these lists of questions online for new couples, you know, to quiz to get to know each other. And if there was ever a, a lull in conversation, out comes this list. And, and so I tried there not to be lulls, but these lists would come out, especially on road trips. You know, they'd come out and, and questions like, uh, you know, what were your dreams? You know, all those kinds of things. Or uh, some of them were just silly questions. You know, if you had a boat, what would you name it? Oh, my goodness. What was that? What's your greatest accomplishment in life? Surviving this conversation? I don't know. No, I didn't say that. No, never said that. Um, if you, I think one question was, if you had a free punch in the face of anyone, who would it be? <laughs> you know, these, these lists of questions, you know, were they sometimes immature and silly? Uh, you bet they were. But the sincerity with which she was asking them was not immature nor silly. Why? Because her motive was to get to know me better. She knew she'd never know me fully, but that wasn't going to stop her from trying to know me truly. Patricia found, for whatever reason, the subject matter, me, fascinating. You know, and motivated by love, she wanted to know everything. And, and the more she learned, the more she loved me. And it's this snowball effect. How much more should this be our approach to knowing our Creator and our Savior and our Sustainer? Will at times the questions be silly and immature that we ask God? Yeah, of course they will. Because there are times that we're silly and immature. Maybe like Moses asking God, show me your entire glory. We'll see that's a pretty dense request. And yet, as we'll also see, God honored that request. Why? Because the motive was pure. He wanted to know God. And so we come after God and we say, God, show me more of you. As we move on in this text, we see that God responds to this request of Moses by graciously providing a display of his glory for him. Let's pick up the account of verse 19. 
And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord. Now stop there. This is the covenant name of God. You see it in your Bibles. It's small capitals. That means Yahweh. The covenant name of God. That's when out of the burning bush, when Moses asked, who do I say is sending me? He said, tell them I am is sending you. Yahweh, the being one, the existing one, the one that is. And in this context, when it's asked, what is a name? It is the full weight of that person comes along with the name. So it's not just saying, this is my name. He's saying, no, my name, me, will be in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Chapter 34, drop to verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. Moses has a simple request. God, show me your glory. What is he showing? God says, you want to see my glory? You want to see what my glory is? It is all of me. And there's a laundry list here of his attributes that he puts on display. My goodness. I'll show you my goodness. I'm going to show you my authority and my autonomy. I do what I want. I am good and I am God. I answer to no one. I will have compassion on who I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. His compassion, his grace, his patience, his forgiveness, his justice, his holiness. In other words, God's glory is the full weight of who he is, as we've already said. It is the composite of all of his attributes, his essence, his character. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you what I can handle. But we also notice in the text that God's glory is so potent, so concentrated, so strong, that Moses has to be protected from it. He has to be guarded against it because it would kill him. It would consume him. Moses can't see God fully, but he can see him truly. God protects him, and and at the right moment, it's almost like he splits his fingers to let a shred of his glory come in. And so what Moses saw was truly God's glory, but it wasn't the full thing because he would not survive that. We need to understand that the same is very much true for us today. That God wants us to see him. And he wants us to know him. Not fully, we can't do that, but truly, he does want us to know him truly. And he has gone to great lengths to make himself known. We're told in scripture that the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19. The word picture is that the creation has a megaphone. It is shouting to us, screaming to humanity, look at the glory of its creator. And in fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul actually says, here's what's actually on display in creation. 
It's his eternal power and divine nature that is being screamed at us from creation. God wants us to see his glory, so he's put it in creation. He's also, as we said, put it in his word. He's told us what he's like. And then finally and most fully, God has shown himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the author writes that the word became flesh the Word being Jesus Christ, became flesh, took on human form, wrapped himself in humanity. And he made his dwelling among us, speaking into his life on earth. And the author goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on in that same book, Jesus on earth, as he is approaching the end of his earthly life, he's having a meal with his disciples, those closest to him. And one of his disciples in chapter 14 says, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. That's all we want to see. Show us the Father. This kind of sounds like Moses. right? Show us the glory. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, oh, Philip, you've been with me so long, you still don't understand. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I carry the weight of the glory of the Father, the one who sent me. Because I and the Father are one. Then in Hebrews Chapter 1, the author of Hebrews, he opens that letter with an astounding comment on the glory of the Son as well. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Right? Speaking to all this Old Testament stuff, God has spoken. He's revealed himself in a plethora of different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And he goes on to say, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by the power of his word. And finally, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Moses longed to see God's glory. And we can relate to that sentiment. We long to see God's glory. And scripture says, if you want to see God's glory, look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of the glory of the Father. Now, Moses' request back in Exodus chapter 33, that God show him his glory, is answered by God, who responds with a gracious display of his glory, all that Moses can handle without killing him. And whatever that looked like, we don't know. We're left guessing. We don't exactly know what shred of that glory came through his hand. But what we do know is how Moses responded in verse 8 of chapter 34. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. A shred of that glory got through the fingers of the Almighty, anthropomorphically speaking. He doesn't have fingers. But he allowed him to see a shred of his glory, and Moses hit the ground, worshipped him. Couldn't help him. We're all familiar with involuntary physical responses to amazing people, places, and things. When you're in their presence something happens, right? And you don't plan on it, it just you react. You step up to the Grand Canyon, you gasp, and you feel small. You don't plan on doing those things, it just enacts a response in you. Or if you're at the zoo and you're feet away from a huge lion as it crouches around, separated only by a piece of glass, and you see its muscles twitching in its back, and you see the ethos of this beast, you feel relatively powerless in that moment. And there's a there's an appropriate fear that comes in you. We have these involuntary physical reactions to amazing things. 
Well, there's only one appropriate involuntary response to a display of God's glory. Moses does it here. It's worship. Worship is a word we use a lot of times in Christian circles, sometimes without defining it. Worship means just the declaration of something's worthiness. You are worthy. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of submission. You are worthy because of what you've shown us, what you have done because of your character. And Moses, in an act of worship, falls to the ground and says, you are worthy because of the glory he was able to see. When finite creatures catch a glimpse of the glory of the eternal God, the response is to be heartfelt, humble, self-forgetting, adoration-filled worship. And that's really the goal of this series, brothers and sisters. As we week after week are exposed to who God is in these different facets, knowing that we'll never know him fully, but we want to know him truly. Our prayer for this series is that the culmination of which would make us better worshipers. As we know him more clearly, as we know him more more amazingly, we will come to church, we will worship day to day in a more pure way because we are better worshipers when we know more clearly who it is we are worshiping. And that's our prayer for this series. Now as I close this morning, I want to highlight three invitations here that I believe God is extending to each and every one of us this morning. We are invited. We are invited. Three invitations from God to each and every one of us. Not just for this week, but invitations for the rest of our lives. The first invitation is that we are invited to marvel at his glory. Just marvel at him. Sometimes, and rightly so, we get distracted by knowing things more about God. And that's a good thing to be equipped. We've talked about being equipped. The church's role is to equip the saints. We want to know more about God. But sometimes we need to just marvel at who he is. You know what Moses was doing in verse 18 when he said, God, show me your glory? If you're familiar with the account, he had just been up on the mountain meeting with God. He got the new covenant laws from God. He was going to take it back to the people of God, holding the the tablets, the Ten Commandments. He got down the mountain, and what does he see? God's people dancing around a metal idol. He'd been gone days, weeks maybe, and they forgot. They forgot about the exodus. They forgot about everything God had done. And Moses was so infuriated, he threw the tablets down and shattered them. And he said, I can't take this anymore, God. I can't lead this stiff-necked people. I'm not capable. I just can't do this. And he goes and he meets with God. He says, God, show me your glory. This was not a happy, exciting time for Moses when he declared, God, show me your glory. He was hurting. And he didn't know what his calling was anymore. He didn't know. He was at the end of himself. And likewise, you and I are invited by God to look up from the muck and mire that we might be trudging through in life. And God says, look at me. Behold my glory. I'm convinced that most of the stresses, most of the anxieties, most of the the turmoil that we deal with in life would either be solved, would be fading, or would at least be put in perspective if Christians would stop regularly and behold God's glory. All of a sudden, this issue, it doesn't go away, but all of a sudden it pales in comparison to how awesome my God is. How awesome the God is that I will spend eternity with. All of a sudden, all of this stuff gets put in perspective. If we would discipline ourselves and accept the invitation to just marvel at his glory. How does the old hymn go? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know it. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we gaze upon him, all of a sudden, these don't go away. We're still living in a fallen world. 
We want to minimize strife. We don't want to minimize pain. But it's handled a lot differently when we have a right view of God's glory. Too often in the North American church, and maybe this is across the world, I don't know, too often I feel that we minimize who God is and we elevate humanity. We think very highly of ourselves and far too low of God. When in reality, the biblical view is God is astronomically, immeasurably high. And in light of Him, He puts us in our right place. We as a church want to pray that God would help us to see God rightly. That we would marvel at His glory. And that's His invitation to us. Not just this week, but for the rest of our lives. The second invitation is not only that we marvel at His glory, but you and I are also invited to reflect His glory. What a privilege. If we kept reading in chapter 34 of Exodus, we learn that eventually Moses comes back again down to the people of God. And this time, his face is beaming. The people can't even look at him because he's met with God, he's seen God's glory, and it is emanating from him. And the people are, are taken aback because he's reflecting the glory of God. And if I was to tell you right now that we as New Testament Christians, we do that even more so, you'd say I'm crazy. So I'll get Paul to talk to you instead. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to this. Paul is comparing the Old Covenant, which we just read about in Exodus chapter 33, to us, New Covenant believers, which Mike was sharing with us about just moments ago. Paul says this. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory as it was, fading as it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if that was transitory, if that was fading, if that, if that which was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? The Old Testament law, we are not under that anymore. It came with glory. Moses brought it down, reflecting the glory of God. That is gone. We now have the law written on our hearts. The Spirit dwelling in us. That glory supersedes the glory before. And we are invited as the people of God to take that into the world with us and to show the glory to a world that desperately needs it. What a privilege. I don't know about you, but when I reflect on my own life, I shake my head. Why on earth would God use someone like me to do anything for His glory? And yet He does. He says he he loves to use the weak. He loves to use the broken, if they're willing to be used. And so it is a gracious invitation for the Lord, not only to marvel at his glory, day by day, hour by hour, but also to reflect his glory. And we come, and we bask in his glory, we sing about him, we know him, we go out into the world charged up to reflect his glory to the world that desperately needs to see it. Now the third and final invitation for us to consider this morning. Gracious invitation from the Lord. And this one gets me. I learned last night one of my friends died from cancer. So this one gets me. We're invited to anticipate God's glory. We see a fraction of the glory of God now. We're privileged to see it. But it is nothing compared to what we can anticipate. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, for those of you who don't know, is the end of the Bible. The Apostle John is being given a vision from the Lord of things to come. Things that for us are still yet future, that we anticipate, that we hold dear, that we long for. This is what he describes. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. This day is coming, friends, and we groan in anticipation for it. And every trial that we go through, every pain that we experience, every heartbreak, everything, it should not only cause us to depend on the Lord, but it should cause us to ache for that day when that will all be gone. And we will see the glory of God on display in ways that even Moses would have ached for. So we are invited as a people of God not only to marvel at his glory now, not only to reflect it to the world around us, but to anticipate that coming glory. I appreciate the lyrics of the song we sang just before communion today. I know it's a new song and we may or may not keep singing it. It doesn't matter. But listen to the words. The words are so powerful because they're lifted right out of Revelation. I don't know if you knew that, but those words are right from Revelation, largely Revelation 5. Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, I think we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Yeah, we do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Yeah, we do. Do you wish that it could all be made new? Yeah. Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Yes, it is. Praise the Lord. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? I'd say it's essential we remind ourselves of this. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? That's speaking in Revelation 5 of the one who can get this all started, who can usher in this new heavens and new earth, who can begin what we long for, begin what we ache for. Is anyone worthy? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, Jesus Christ. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. That's me, that's you. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory, is he worthy? And the church universal says with a resounding clarity, he is. He absolutely is. And so we pine for that new day. We ache for it. As a church, we are invited by God because he is immeasurably glorious. We will never know him fully, but we are invited to know him truly. And because that, we are invited. We are invited to marvel at his glory now, and I pray that we do that as a church. We're invited to reflect his glory as we leave these doors. We are invited to anticipate his glory, which is coming, which we ache for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. And even as we say that, the word falls so flat after looking at Exodus chapter 33 and 34 alone. We know that that word coming from broken lips like ours means not enough. Your glory far surpasses our wildest imaginations, but one thing is for sure, as your people, 
we cannot wait to see it on full display. Father, continue to shape us as your people into a people who are enamored with you and who everything we do in the Christian life is not out of guilt or necessity or obligation, but it is out of just a desire to please you because you are so unbelievably worthy. May that be a mark of our church and everyone in this building going forward. In Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.